Welcome to Revival from the Bible, a daily devotional podcast designed to help more people get into God's Word and get more out of the Word. I'm Ben Blakey. It's Wednesday, July 7th, 2021. Well, it all comes down to this. Today, we really read the end of the nation of Judah. We will see Jerusalem and the temple be destroyed, the people carried off into exile, into Babylon, and really the culmination of so much of our years reading in the Old Testament today, it kind of coming to this point of Jerusalem being destroyed, the nation really, for all intents and purposes, being destroyed in that moment. Uh, but before we get there to Second Kings and the end of that book, I want us to begin today by looking at Psalm 79, verses 8 through 13, as we consider, well, how do you pray for a nation like that? How do you pray for a nation that is coming to its end, seemingly, and coming to its end really as a result of the judgment of God um, for its sin, where on the one hand you say, man, this is so sad that this is happening. But on the other hand, you say, on the other hand, you say, this is right that this is happening because this is the just judgment and punishment that God said that he would give. How do you pray for a nation like that? We do mention often just even the concerning state of our own nation on this podcast. And maybe even as we consider these words from Psalm 79 and we look at the nation of Judah, right, we can think about how can we pray for our own nation, a nation that is clearly in decline, so it seems, when we look at really the story of this nation in the Bible that we're going to read today. And as we look at the second half of this psalm, we remember the first uh, is very sad. It just talks about how the temple has been defiled. Jerusalem lays in ruins. The bodies of your servants have been given to the birds of heaven for food. I mean, this is bad. Uh, But then look at how the prayer then starts to turn in verse 8. It says, Do not remember against us our former iniquities. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us, for we are brought very low. Now, I want you to notice there even the humility that is present in that verse. That The, the psalmist here clearly is someone that seems to be seeking after God, yet it still speak, he still speaks in the first person. Do not remember us, uh, against us, our former iniquities. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us. And I think that's good. And something biblical that we see, we'll see it later in the year when we read the book of Daniel, at times godly men who certainly seemed to be the ones standing against the unrighteousness that was growing in society and the evil in their nations, uh, they still prayed in that first person, that sense of God, forgive us. And I think that's a good reminder for us and how we should pray for our nation. Well, we should be praying that God would forgive our sins. We should see ourselves as a part, in some ways, of the problem that we are not perfect. We are sinners um, as a part of this nation. And we should come. There's also, I think, a sense of intercession that we're coming on behalf of the nation. And even though we might not personally share in all the sins of the nation, we are a part 
of the nation and, and we're coming to God to intercede. So I want you to notice the humility of this prayer. And I want you to ask even your prayers, even for your own nation, do they sound more like the righteous Pharisee in the parable that Jesus tells? God, thank you that I'm not like them. Or does it sound more like this? God, forgive us uh, for our iniquities. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us. And then another thing I want you to notice from verse eight is really just the appeal to God's compassion. That's what he is appealing to in one sense. And I think that's another thing is we uh, pray for our nation. And, and I think this works no matter really what nation of the world you live in. We have to admit, you know, the kingdoms of the world are assembled together against God, against his anointed. There is no reason God should not judge the world. And so when we come to God, we need to appeal to his compassion and his mercy. And even when we think about the United States of America, we shouldn't come to God and act like we deserve something from him. No, we should come to him and ask him for mercy, ask him for compassion on our nation. And then we see verse nine, help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name, deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. And there again, we see that sense of humility atone for our sins, but we also see a common theme that we see throughout the Psalms that the psalmist is not praying for his own benefit. He's praying for the glory of God. God, do this for the glory of your name. Atone for our sins for your name's sake. I think that's a great way to pray for your own nation. God, do something, not just so that... Um, I am less frustrated by what's going on in my nation, but God, do something for the glory of your name. And I think those are great and biblical things to appeal to. When it, you're praying more of a prayer for of intercession, whether that's for a nation, whether that's for somebody in your life that you're really praying on their behalf for, the things that we should appeal to in our prayers are the compassion of God and just his merciful character. And also we should be appealing to God's zeal for his own glory. So I think as you pray, you should say, God, have mercy on my nation or have mercy on this person that I'm praying for. And God, do this for your glory, for your name's sake. And we see that really then in verse 10, he's saying, why should the nation say, where is their God? God, to defend your own name. And even though this is a discouraging prayer in a clearly discouraging time, we get one glimpse of how God's people can still always have some sense of optimism and joy, no matter how dark things are around them. Verse 13, but we, your people, the sheep of your pasture will give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount your praise. And let that be your commitment, no matter what's going on in the lives of people that you love, no matter what's going on in the nation around you, uh, just that you would be resolved to give thanks no matter what, that we will trust in God, we will uh, give thanks to God, we will recount his praise from generation to generation. So with that in mind, let's go and actually look at the decline and really the end of the, the kingdom of Judah. We read about Josiah's reforms yesterday, but even saw it was too late. And then we see the end comes pretty quickly in uh, chapters 24 and 25. You see a quick succession of some kings here in these passages. You see kind of Nebuchadnezzar come once 
and establish a king that he wants to rule. Um, but then we see, especially Zedekiah there, he rebels against King Nebuchadnezzar. And then that's when kind of the final destruction comes and they come in and they destroy Jerusalem. They completely destroy the temple. And we see then he, someone is made governor and that doesn't even go well because he is killed. And we'll see more of really even just how that was discouraging and more wickedness. We'll read more about that when we get to the book of Jeremiah. Uh, but this is the end for the nation of Judah. But is it really? And that's where I want you to notice it ends kind of on a note of encouragement. Uh, at the very end, it talks about how Jehoiachin was released from prison and kind of given a seat at the king's table. So it ends actually on a slightly encouraging note that while this may be the end of this divided kingdom era um, in the nation of Israel, it is not the end for Israel, that clearly God still had a plan. We're going to read about that even just as we get to the books post-exile. They come back just like God said they would, and the temple is rebuilt even then. But still, I believe God is not through with the nation of Israel. But you read about the end of this political era here in chapters 24 and 25 as they are wiped out um, Jerusalem is wiped out, at least temporarily, by the Babylonians. But we'll get to the rebuilding of the temple and the walls is when we get to Ezra and Nehemiah. But may we just be warned and, and turn a lot of what we see today really into prayer for the world around us today. And next, let's move on to Luke chapter 4. And today we're looking at verses 14 through 30, which mainly looks at a sermon that Jesus teaches or kind of even just a scripture reading. It's a short sermon uh, that he gives in the synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth. And he gets up and he opens the scroll to the book of Isaiah and he reads these words. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Isn't that a great verse? Um, and what a beautiful Old Testament picture of the gospel that we can rejoice in, that, hey, we have good news preached to us, we can have liberty, we can have recovery of sight. Um, what amazing things that Jesus has made true through the gospel. And then we read how the crowd stands and applauds and says, praise God, the Messiah has come. Let us worship him. Uh, no, that's not how the rest of the chapter goes. They, what Jesus, his comment on the passage is today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So he claims to be the fulfillment of this passage. And instead of responding in worship, they say, isn't this Joseph's son? Don't we know this guy? What in the world is he talking about? And then Jesus goes on to expose really their unbelief and uses these examples of times where uh, the message of God and the blessing of God even was given to Gentiles or, or given to people uh, not among the nation of Israel. Um, and they respond with so much anger that they they threaten to kill Jesus. And in fact, it seems that they attempt to. They bring him to the brow of the hill so that they could throw him down. And even if you visit Nazareth today, you can see a pretty impressive hill with some pretty impressive cliffs that you would not want to get thrown down because that would mean uh, you would die. 
But that is how they respond. And this reminds me some of just what I've been teaching through in the Gospel of John lately and how Jesus says, hey, look at how they hated me. They're going to hate you. And I think this passage encapsulates that. He comes bringing good news, but they reject it. And if we think, well, hey, I'm just bringing good news. I won't really face persecution. No, that good news exposes people's sin. And people to embrace that good news have to humble themselves, which is not, many people would rather kill the messenger than humble themselves. And so we get a a taste of the good news that we should rejoice in, but we also get a taste of the opposition that we will face as we seek to spread the gospel message. Well, finally, we look at Galatians 3, um, 15 through 29. And as we do so, we, again, we're looking at this theme that how are we justified? We are justified by faith, not by the works of the law. And so he is continuing to explain this. And we see him explain this today as he really goes back to the promise that God made to Abraham. And he says, okay, guys, which came first, the promise or the law? Well, the promise to Abraham came first. The book of Genesis comes before the book of Exodus. Uh, So the promise to Abraham was not nullified by the law, and it wasn't fulfilled by the law. It was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so he goes into this um, explanation and even illustration of the law being like a tutor. The law then came to, to give us something to prepare us for Christ. And we know from Scripture, one of the purposes was to show us our sin, but it was not, the law was never meant to be the means of our salvation or our justification. Starting in verse 21, he says, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Even saying, hey, if the law could have saved us, why would we need anything else? But it couldn't. That's why we needed Jesus. And it was meant to kind of keep us ready for the Messiah. And now faith has come. And this is a good thing. We are no longer under a guardian or a tutor. For in Christ Jesus, verse 26 says, you are all sons of God through faith. And then it says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, no male or free, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And in an age where equality and talk of that is so much of the rage, we realize that the world is never going to figure that out on its own. True um, equality and reconciliation and all these things can only really be found through the gospel and through Jesus Christ and the good news that he brings. So let's declare that message and let's pray. Let's pray specifically for our nation with humility, appealing to God's compassion, appealing to his zeal for his own name as we seek to continue to live for him. Thanks for digging into God's word with me today on Revival from the Bible. For more resources, check out revivalfromthebible.com. To learn more about Compass Bible Church Treasure Valley, go to compassbible.tv. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you.